you must have been upset about the World Cup final. Yes, of course. With France. Yeah, it did. But the, the game was um, fantastic. In all fairness, I mean, the first 18 minutes were completely one-sided and were for the Argentinian team. So, I, of course, as a French supporter, I was upset, clearly, um, on that match, for sure, that game, uh, Argentina deserved it. What about coffee or wine? I enjoy both, and I'm French, obviously, um, wine is part of our culture. I'm a bit of a coffee geek, and I like, um, you know, having the, how do you call them? The, the beans. Beans, thanks. Yeah, uh, so yeah, I yeah. like, like, mostly every day have coffee, I don't have wine every day. French food or Italian food? <laughs> so um, that's a tough one, but I must admit, maybe place uh, Italian food slightly, but very slightly, huh, ahead of uh, French food. On today's episode of the CX Insider podcast, we'll be talking to Mark Montagna, the head of e-commerce and digital marketing for Vacheron Constantin. We'll be discussing the premium watch industry's rise in popularity, the breakthrough of digital watches, the consequences of fake watches on the market, and much, much more. Before we get started, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a like if you enjoyed the video. It would mean the world to us, and most importantly, your like will show us that you appreciate the content we're putting out. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the CX Insider podcast. I'm your host, Octavian. I'm joined today by Greg and our special guest, Mark. Could you tell us a bit about yourself, who you are and what you do? Sure. So uh, thanks uh, for uh, for having me today. My name is Mark. I've been uh, born and raised in Paris. And 10 years ago, I moved to Switzerland because I wanted to work within the watchmaking industry, which is a passion of mine. And so I started my career, joined uh, six years ago, Vacheron Constantin, where I'm in charge of digital marketing and e-commerce. Okay, great. Could you tell us more about the Vacheron Constantin brand? Sure. So uh, Vacheron Constantin is well known among uh, watch collectors for being the oldest watchmaking brand uh, that has been continuously operating since uh, 1755. Being a watch enthusiast myself, what I can say is that compared to uh, other brands, what is really interesting with Vacheron is that Vacheron is extremely rich as a brand. There's been obviously a lot of watches uh, that have been made over the centuries. But also today, when you look at the offering, it's extremely rich, as I was saying. So you have men's watches, women's watches, you have simple uh, time-only watches, much more complicated models. You have models in stainless steel up to uh, platinum and all the gold watches where there's a lot of craftsmanship involved with enameling, engraving, gem setting, for uh, for example, up to um, classic watches for us are, are still produced in small quantities. So yeah, I would say this is uh, pretty much much more constant. So why do people still buy and invest in luxury watches. I mean, there's um, a few reasons for, for that. So the market has completely changed for uh, for watches. When I started collecting myself almost 20, 15 years ago, you could come and go in, in a store, buy a piece, uh, sometimes even with a discount, and it was done uh, almost instantly. Today, there's it's a matter of supply and demand, basically. You have uh, much more people that are requesting watches than manufacturers are able to, to produce because most of the watches are done with a lot of manual work, so you cannot scale this to, uh, to infinity. Probably this has to do with um, digital, social media. There's much more visibility uh, on watches as opposed to um, 10 years ago. And so people are um, are looking for for watches, basically, and um, brands are not always able to come up with the level of demand. So it, it basically means that more and more people are trying to acquire the same pieces and the capacity of productions are capped. So an alternative for people that are unable to buy the watch within the what we call the primary market, they'll find someone else who is uh, willing to sell uh, his piece that was acquired previously, but at a higher price. And so this creates larger attention on the on the products. 
And therefore, prices that go up and up and up, therefore, this makes some pieces um, a good investment. I should have probably mentioned this um, also um, when I introduced myself, but I wrote uh, last year a book called uh, Invest in Watches, which is precisely um, talking about this topic of watch uh, investment. I ordered your book this morning. <laughs> so is, is it is in, is in the out for delivery? So I'm excited to read it. That's so cool. Oh, I need to get that book as yeah, well now. Yeah. I'll read it and then give it yeah. to you and get another copy. But yeah, I'm exci- <laughs> I am excited to read it. Yeah, you've seen a lot of people um, that have been discovering a bit uh, watches uh, almost as a, as a passion. And then when they realized uh, that for, I mean, how the market was um, evolving, a lot of those uh, new collectors, I mean, some of those collectors have eventually turned themselves into dealers as well. And this whole thing was also accentuated um, a couple of years ago. Manufacturing capacity of the brand were impacted, obviously. The production that was already limited became um, even more limited. For some people, they had less opportunity to actually um, enjoy their money and do stuff with it because they could not travel or these kind of purchases. No one could even even simply go to the restaurant. So um, so some also found a hobby of, of watch collecting and people were trading watches online, which had a, an effect in terms of the value of the piece, which kept uh, rising as well. Over the past year, this has, I would say, normalized. Prices have gone down. But for the most desired pieces, most of them, if not all of them, are still trading over their uh, retail price. Interesting. A lot of people seem to buy a watch because of the brand and then the status symbol that maybe gives them. Do you think that's true? Do you think people buy watches for for a status symbol in some respects? Because like you say, some people do it to appreciate the piece and as a collector and like uh, someone who's passionate. And I guess you can be both, but do you think people do it also for that status in some respects? For, for sure, this definitely uh, happens. But what I found personally interesting as a collector is that there's like so many different ways that you can actually enjoy a piece. Let's say if I was investing in, uh, in stock, it's just because I want to invest and make um, money out of this and there's nothing wrong, obviously, yeah, with that. But it's limited in a way versus uh, watches, you can enjoy them for potential investment for um, uh, status, as you were mentioning, because of the history of the brand, because of the design, because of the technicality of the movement, or because of whatever famous owner um, uh, previously owned a piece or a similar one, because it was eventually your grandfather's piece. There's like an infinity of opportunities to actually um, enjoy pieces. There's also a lot of, of brands and myself, I'm fortunate of being involved internally in uh, one of the most interesting brands that it has ever been. But there's a lot of other brands as well, which are interesting in um, their own aspect as well. So it's extremely varied, I would say, as a landscape, which makes it um, extremely interesting in my opinion. I wanted to talk a little bit about online shopping. So what effect do you think online shopping has had within your industry? It's really interesting because obviously uh, digital has changed everything in all the industries and the uh, watchmaking industry, when you compare it to other industries, let's say um, fashion, for example, is watchmaking is much less advanced. And there's many reasons for, for that, I suppose. Maybe one of them is the fact that um, as an industry, even if we are looking ahead of us, we're also looking backwards to our heritage, etc., which uh, we are extremely proud of. Uh, and there's other industries where that are exclusively looking uh, forward. And so we tend to be a bit less fast-paced than um, other industries. And uh, so we've been quite late at adopting uh, e-commerce and digital overall. Most of the brands, especially at the higher-end brands, are not selling um, online yet. I believe personally that this is almost a mistake, if I may, in the sense that 
whether we like it or not, extremely high-end uh, watches are already traded online. When you look at um, auctions, let's say, where the most expensive watches are being traded or sold, this happens most of the time remotely. Sure, there's people here and there that are within the auction room and raising the paddle, but most of the bids are actually either coming over the phone or over um, uh, internet. And so this is how customers are, um, are shopping uh, watches uh, and pretty much anything. And so, yes, I believe it's just a trend that uh, people are living and us as an industry, but pretty much anyone. And even more so, I would say when you're in, evolving in the luxury industry, your goal and your purpose is to serve your, your customers. And so if your customers are willing to purchase online, then so be it. And my job will be to facilitate that. It doesn't mean, however, that I should force people to buy online. No, that people should buy wherever they, they want. And even if myself, I'm representing e-commerce, I'm more than happy if thanks to the website, thanks to social media, I'm um, inviting people to uh, book an appointment at one of our boutiques. And, um, and those customers end up transacting in our in boutique. That's perfectly uh, fine. Also, something to, uh, to consider is that with high-end um, watches, the distribution is limited because first, the production, as I was saying, is limited. But you don't see hundreds and, and thousands of boutiques around the, the world or in a single country. It's usually, first, brands aren't available in all countries. And whenever they are, depending on the size of the country, it can be one, two, three boutiques, you know. But it's never, uh, you won't find a, a boutique in all the cities. So this is where, obviously, you see where I'm going. Uh, E-commerce can be extremely convenient because, um, let's say, if you look at a territory like the U.S., which is extremely large as a territory, obviously, we do have um, a few boutiques, but not enough to cover the entire country, of course. And which means that depending where our U.S. collector would be um, residing, he or she would have to take the plane to um, buy a piece which would not be convenient. So this is also a way that e-commerce can eventually uh, support and be brought as a service to uh, our customers. You were saying there about why some of these brands choose not to. Do you think it's partly also because they feel like it takes away from their brand? in some way in terms of holding on to the traditional you know go to a boutique select your piece try it on do you think they 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 believe that it actually takes away from the brand experience potentially yes i mean there's definitely an element of that for sure and i will say also again it's uh, an industry that is not uh, moving extremely uh, quickly and when you look at how watches were sold i'll tell you, i'll go back a bit in history like back in the in the years and not that long ago actually uh, watchmakers were just in charge of actually producing their watches but they were not distributing their watches directly to co uh, consumers they were um, distributing their watches to distributors who then in turn would have the relationship of the customers and distribute the pieces and it's been fairly recent that brands have started to um have their own boutiques for some of them. And up to today, there's still like big names in the industry who are uh, still um, distributing their um, products to a partner. So um, yeah, it's fairly recent that brands are doing uh, D2C. And so the, I would say the following evolution to, to that is e-commerce. It goes a step further. But some brands have not done that uh, switch yet already. And yeah, there's this heritage, I would say, in the way that uh, brands are distributing their, their product, which does not help. And for sure, as you were saying, given the price of our products, the complexity um, of those products as well, as a brand, you would you want to ensure that uh, customer experience is up to the level of uh, of the product, of course. 
And so this adds an additional challenge. It's actually rare to be able to see like the place where the product you have comes from. We're surrounded by products, of course, but how many times have you visited the actual facility where that product was made? First, this is extremely rare or never happens. And even when that's the case, it might not have all those elements of craftsmanship and manual work involved. And it's extremely rewarding to see this as a customer for sure. So Mark tells us about the convenience of e-commerce to watch buyers and the customer experience that can be created. But how do brands like Vacheron create a luxurious experience when selling their products? And how is that customer experience evolving in the future when looking at the dynamic of boutiques versus the rapid rise of e-commerce? So for me, this is about like, again, going back to this idea of service and increasing the, the level of smoothness of every transaction and every um, interaction. And what we see is that customers are interacting with the brand in so many different uh, touch points, whether it is uh, obviously uh, social media, the, the website, there's our emailing, there's our boutiques, we have a concierge over the phone uh, as well. And so customers are interacting all those um, many uh, different uh, touch points. It's sometimes a, a challenge to be able to um, identify the customer across all the touch points and really be extremely um, efficient in the way we are answering any kind of request, query, or, or whatever. And so I was mentioning the website. The idea is to get the highest level in all the aspects of, um, let's say, the, the website. So it means that if we go to content, then content must be in terms of quality, the highest quality, um, of course, when you're in the context of, of a watch, let's say, especially within um, e-commerce, you want to help the consumer project him or herself with the watch on the wrist. So you need to include the pictures of the watch being worn, ideally on multi on different sizes of, of wrists. It's always extremely hard to, um, especially if you're a bit inexperienced, to really, from like the simple figure of the diameter of the watch to understand, project yourself with the actual fit of the watch on your wrist. You'd be surprised when you look at, um, I mean, websites uh, of watch companies. Some, of course, include those kinds of wrist shots I was mentioning, but it's not systematic, you know, and it's extremely um, complicated for customers to really be able to, to understand the, the, the actual fit and look and feel of the product without these kind of shots. So you want to have excellence in the assets that you are producing. You want then to show the, the quality of the finishing of the product, of one or have something that is extremely smooth. We also constantly um, monitor the way our users are uh, interacting with our website because we want to understand if there's any pain points on the website. And sometimes we see that people are clicking on um, areas of, uh, of a page which they believe is a, is a button, which actually isn't. So it means that for us, our website needs to be um, slightly tweaked to compensate for this uh, behavior. So you basically want that in all the ways that people are experiencing our touch points, and here I was elaborating on the on the website, you want to make their lives uh, easier. And going back to the e-commerce aspect, you want to make sure that you propose the relevant payment options, the relevant delivery options as well, so that you're, you're basically removing any kind of friction. And what about your boutiques? So how do you deliver such a high quality of service in a boutique? Do you do anything different or, or like magic as such as, you know, such a premium brand? Or do you, do you really just do a lot of the things quite simple, but very well? How do you sort of approach your boutique experience? I'm not myself an expert of, of boutique and retail, but what I can say uh, as well, uh, there's a lot of training uh, involved in our our staff are extremely knowledgeable, know extremely well the, the product. What is extremely interesting is that customers that are um, looking for these kind of products are um, people that really enjoy watches. Like no one buys 
of watches, especially these kind of watches, out of necessity. You know, it's because uh, going back to the reasons why people were acquiring watches that we touched upon at the beginning, people really enjoy uh, watches. The analogy that um, I, I often make is that there's a lot of people that use a car every day that absolutely hate the car, driving, getting stuck in traffic, whatever. They just need it to go to work, you know, versus when you see someone wearing a watch, you know that that person, that person made the choice of actually wearing the piece on the, on the wrist. It's because that person loves watches. There's no other reason why, you know, I mean, uh, there's so many other ways, maybe <laughs> I'll admit even more convenient of getting time. Uh, so if you're actually um, wearing a watch on your wrist, it's that you're uh, really into, uh, into watches. So customers are really passionate uh, about our products. And what I've seen myself uh, within the boutiques, is the, the staff is extremely um, knowledgeable and extremely good at uh, sharing that passion and nourishing that passion that customers already have. Yeah, what role do the account managers play with your customers? Yeah. It's really possible for an uh, actual customer who know the sales staff um, he or she will be interacting with. Like if you purchase a watch from someone, eventually you buy a second watch uh, couple of months or a year later, you probably still buy it from the same person, you know, which does not happen, you know, where I know I'm wearing my AirPods here. I don't know if I've ever interacted with a human when I did the purchase and should I buy another Apple product at some point, I'll probably buy it from someone else, you know. The, and because of the scale, of course, I mean, there's millions, tens of millions of, of AirPods being sold each year. And this is a single product within a single brand. You know, the scale for watches, luxury watches, handmade watches is completely different. So it means that there's a really a level of, of connection and interaction with the staff, which is uncomparable uh, as well. Our customers are collectors and they enjoy talking watches with their sales staff. There's really this... Um, relationship that is uh, being created and I see it myself because in a way I'm, I'm on both sides because I'm a professional but I'm also a collector myself and so I see it from both sides and it's not rare at all I'd actually say it's even quite common for a customer to um, chat over WhatsApp with his uh, sales associate you know so the relationship is completely different but I would say it's aligned with the level of product that we are talking about. When we think of buying watches, we usually think brand new and fresh out the box. However, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Let's go through the different types of watches that are available on the market right now. So there's watches that you buy brand new, what I would call like second hand, and then I will make a distinction with vintage. Second hand would be like a modern piece. It can also be one that I just bought and that I eventually sell a short year after or watches that were bought a couple of years ago and that are sold. So it's pretty much modern watches that are being traded. And then there's actual vintage watches. And for some brands that have been out there for centuries, it could be like really old watches. You know, it can be watches that are literally centuries old, uh, back-to-pocket watches, for example. And here, th there can be the notion that you mentioned of restoration. You know, you would not really restore a modern timepiece. You would service it as you service uh, regularly, let's say, a, a car. And it's fascinating to watch pieces or watches be restored. It's so fascinating because they, they do it at such a minute scale. And when you see these advanced pieces that they create and how many extremely small pieces make up a complication within a watch or whatever it may be, it will blow your mind if you've never seen it before. And I spend hours like, you know, just watching them. I completely uh, agree. And I see the, the kind of uh, content you're referring to. And indeed, uh, 
even myself being surrounded by watches on a daily basis, I'm still um, as captivated as the, the, the first day. But when it comes to like real vintage uh, watches, some of them need actually to be uh, restored. And something that I've always uh, found extremely um, exciting at, at Vachon Constantin is that so the brand has been around for 268 years now. Wow. Uh, so a lot, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the brand is still able to completely service, repair, restore literally any kind of watch, even those backing uh, those days. The trend uh, as a market and, and collectors have picked up a lot uh, on uh, on vintage watches. And this is something that I developed in the, in the book um, as well. There's like so many um, vintage pieces that people have started getting really excited uh, about and where the value has really increased a lot. As a collector, those watches are also interesting to acquire because of the heart uh, that goes with the, the acquisition of such pieces. Because I would say the actual process today of purchasing a modern piece can sometimes be a bit frustrating in the sense that, as I was saying before, we don't always have the stock for the piece because it's too much in demand. So you have to inquire for the piece. And eventually, after a couple of months, sometimes even years, you, you get the piece. It delays a bit uh, the acquisition of the piece. Sometimes for some uh, models, it's literally um, multiple years and you might probably won't even get it because, you know, uh, the demand is such high that, uh, you know, after five years, who knows if the product is still being produced anymore, you know, yeah. who knows if you're still interested with the piece uh, as well as uh, at times. Modern customer journey of acquiring um, a modern time piece can sometimes, depending on the models, etc., be a bit frustrating. On the other side, the, when you're looking into really not the modern second hand, but really vintage pieces, and this can be really exciting because um, you discover models uh, whether they are being offered at auctions or by other collectors or at um, watch dealers, etc., You never really know what's going to pop in their shelves or at auctions. Also, those watches back in the days were not produced to thousands or even hundreds of pieces. Sometimes for some of them, it was only a handful. So the products are actually rare. According to news reports by luxury watch specialist Watchfinder & Co, over 1 million watches were identified as counterfeit in circulating the UK, with a whopping 40 million counterfeit watches being sold worldwide annually. So what role does the counterfeit market play when it comes to the watchmaking industry and the selling of premium watches? I mean, obviously it's, it's illegal to, to start with, so um, it's, a, it's, it's a nightmare. It's a phenomenon that touches more some brands than others because um, obviously people that will be um, counterfeiting uh, watches will do it for the purpose of money, which goes uh, without saying, of course. Uh, and so they will target either watches that have massive volume because it means that there's a lot of customers to basically rip. And also sometimes for extremely um, highly uh, collectible um, Watches, vintage pieces where a single detail on the, on the watch dial, whether it is like the font of, uh, of the brand back, how it was made back in the days, et cetera, like those super small detail can completely change the, the value of a piece and it, it can um, like triple the value of a piece of a piece that was already a couple hundreds of thousands, you know, so it can really make a, a massive difference. So there's indeed some um, counterfeiters that are really specialized in um, changing a bit like those watches to make them um, appear as more valuable, more rare, more whatever, and sell, sell them for a, a massive profit. And there's a lot of um, crazy stories um, that you um, have seen uh, even recently um, in the news of counterfeited watches that were eventually sold at auctions or stuff like this that went almost um, under, undercover until um, they were exposed. 
So it's it's a massive threat because for for brands you don't want I mean you don't want to project um, an idea of negativity and issues etc. It's supposed to be something enjoyable, fun, and uh, about fashion etc. Not about um, counterfeiting and illegal stuff. You know, as brands you you want to protect this, and this is why um, you were mentioning also uh, vintage second hand restoration etc. When brands are involved with restoration, they're also acting as an authenticator of the of the product. So this brings trust to the market, and this is what collectors are looking. So um, it's a it's an issue that analyzes uh, both customers and and brands, and that everyone needs to to tackle that at some point. I think we could do an, an entire episode just about that <laughs> that part of the industry because it's so because the the lengths people must go to in order to forge and counterfeit must be incredible because if you have such a rare piece like you say the level of detail going into the actual making of the piece but then the box the paperwork the authentication that then comes with that people can go to extreme lengths to get it through like you say an auction house yeah for, for sure and well, you, you mentioned box and papers but those can be counterfeited as well yeah and uh but also the the good news that says that you can also uh, trade a watch without those box and papers so so it's it's not necessarily a blocker. I would make the analogy with painting. You've probably heard or seen stories of crazy, um, and those people were actually talented. You know, like actual uh, actual painters that were able to reproduce crazy uh, paintings as if it was Da um, Vinci one or whoever. You know, but uh, it, it touches. It, it's something that touches art, and I would say watchmaking is a form of art as well. So yeah, for those really uh, high end vintage pieces which are almost similar to a painting, those are basically the same issue. Mark, you've you've mentioned Apple products and for a few years now, Apple's also dived into the world of watches. What what is your opinion on digital watches like the ones that Apple make? That's a super interesting topic, which I, I suppose could also make uh, up for a full um, episode, but I'm happy <laughs> yeah. to um, comment on this. Yeah, it, it's an interesting thing to, to witness because ultimately, though you have two wrists, you mainly there's mainly one risk where uh, you'll be wearing a watch. I mean, of course, I've seen uh, here and there collectors or people wearing uh, two watches, but um, it's not a big use case. And my, the point I'm trying to make here is that there's a space for one watch. So it's uh, there's a there's a tough competition in a way, you know. But the products are completely uh, different. Out of curiosity, I bought myself uh, an Apple Watch uh, two years ago. Uh, not just at, at the beginning, I thought the, the product back then was quite uh, disappointing. Eventually, it um, improved uh, quite uh, quite a lot. And it's just a good product, uh, ultimately. And uh, it has great features, which are honestly hard to compete with because probably seen in the news as well. Stories about Apple Watch that have literally saved lives. That's quite a strong statement and a one that is hard to um, to fight against. It's it's interesting to to follow uh, how this segment is uh, evolving because it still has flaws as a product like um, power reserve. The battery is extremely uh, minimal. You know, it's um, barely covers a full day. You know, but eventually there will be a time where it will be uh, maybe a full week or even solar powered, and then uh, then it will be um, almost perpetual. It's still completes different products. Like you don't get the same pleasure of wearing a, a luxury mechanical watch. And ultimately, today I'm wearing it for two reasons. Whenever I'm playing sports, 
and alarm to wake me up in the morning because I found it's more, um, I prefer being uh, gently um, seeing the um, gentle vibration it does on the wrist in the morning versus like a, a massive alarm that uh, wakes me up uh, already mad and the day yeah. hasn't even started yet. But that's um, pretty much the only use cases I do and I don't really get any leisure. It's a piece of plastic and electronic. It has nothing to do with the level of craftsmanship of um, a mechanical watch, which I wear every day and often um, see myself in a single day, like switching um, the watch. Uh, I literally would never get this with a smartwatch. So, um, yeah. It's a good question, Octavian. It's an interesting world. It's almost like comparing a car to a pair of shoes because they're just completely different thing. They both help you get somewhere, but they're completely different. And that concludes the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast. If you have, don't forget to like, share or subscribe to the podcast on your preferred channel. If you'd like to let us know what you think, comment down below and follow us on LinkedIn for regular content centered around the episodes. Also, this episode was brought to you by ACF Technologies, the global leaders in CX software. Now let's get into some quick fire questions. Do you remember your first watch? Yes, of course. I don't know if you're familiar with the brand. It, it was uh, quite popular in France. Uh, it's called Flick Flack. It's uh, basically watches for kids, you know. So the, mm. it's um, it's a brand from the Swatch uh, Group, and it's uh, it's really uh, their line uh, for for kids. So um, it's almost um, a tradition as a as a kid to um, learn how to read time um, with uh, this watch, or as soon as you're able to read time uh, on a proper clock, uh, you get uh, gifted um, this watch. So. Um, I remember uh, it extremely well, uh, actually. It's a smaller feedback of plastic watch. My next question, what's your favorite place to go on holiday? Have you got any specific sort of activity that you like doing? Uh, Those past years with the crazy and busy life that we're all living, I've enjoyed more and more going somewhere extremely remote where there's not a lot of people around and just taking time to rest, to to read, to to write and and do these kind of activities. But there's not a single place where I like doing this. It's more um, different places that I happen to discover uh, by doing this. But if I had to name one place, it would almost sound uh, opposite to what I was just saying. I'm a huge fan of New York. And so it's really <laughs> a, a busy uh, place. Um, incredibly busy. But, um, incredibly busy indeed. Quite far from uh, from uh, Europe. It's not a place that you go like there uh, just for the weekends. But I just happen to absolutely love the um, energy of the of the city, and there's always so many different things to see. And what I've always um, uh, enjoyed with um, uh, the, and appreciated with the city is that whatever you like in life, or any passion you have, or any whatever food you want to taste, or whatever, there'll be. Not only a shop, but sometimes even a full neighborhood full of that, you know. Mm. So um, so you can really um, enjoy a lot of things and a lot of many completely different things. And obviously, there's a lot of crazy watch dealers there. Outside of watches, whatever you'd like, to, you're certain to, to find it there. And I absolutely love it. What about coffee or wine? Uh, I'd say more, I enjoy both and I'm French, obviously. Um, wine is part of our culture, uh, even though I'm not a massive expert. I'm a bit of a coffee geek and I like, um, you know, having the, um, how do you call them? The, the beans. Beans. Thanks. Yeah, uh, so yeah, I yeah. like, mm. like purchasing like the whole beans and, um, and putting it in my special machine and finding beans from different suppliers and trying them out and testing them, etc. Mostly every day I have coffee. I don't have wine every day. French food or Italian food? <laughs> so um, that's a tough one, but I must admit 
Italian food has uh, maybe a slight edge on the, on the French food. And I'm seeing this as a pure French guy myself. French is really amazing. And there's um, something about uh, Italian food that we, um, we uh, love and that would maybe place uh, Italian food slightly, but very slightly huh, ahead of uh, French food. What's your favorite sport either to watch or to play? I'm a huge um, soccer fan, both to, uh, to watch and, uh, and to play. So watching, uh, coming from Paris, I'm a Paris Saint-Germain fan, obviously. Oh, yeah. And um, I play it uh, every week, uh, actually, uh, but indoors, um, uh, you know, five on five. And this I enjoy quite um, a lot. And I've been uh, playing again um, another sport, table tennis. I've been, I used to play it um, as a kid, as a teenager, used to do a competition as well. Uh, completely stopped for a really long time. Six months ago, I started playing uh, again and really enjoyed it. And um, I felt I needed um, simply to add a bit more sports within my life. And um, it was a nice complement to, uh, to the soccer I was practicing. I've happened to, um, to discover the Lebrun brothers, which are two young brothers, younger than 20 years old. And both of them are in the top 20 world. So it's crazy. They have like a massive level. And with the Olympic Games in Paris coming up uh, next year, they'll be obviously representing France and they have, I hope, chances for a medal. So I'll be uh, looking at, uh, at it and rooting for them, of course. You must have been upset about the World Cup final. Yes, of course. With France. Yeah, it did. But the, the game was um, fantastic. In all fairness, I mean, the first 18 minutes were completely one-sided and were for the Argentinian team. So I, of course, as a French supporter, I was upset and I would have much preferred uh, France to win uh, a third title. But clearly uh, on that match, for sure, that game, uh, Argentina deserved it. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> So, aside from watches that you own, what would your dream watch be? Have you got one in mind? Or have you got all your dream ones already? So, clearly, uh, I have room in my heart for many more watches. It's not about that one single model that would end it all. It's more just like living the journey, you know, and discovering new and new watches, whether it is uh, from new brands that I don't know or don't own yet, or... Um, watches from brands I already have and I'd like to explore a bit further their history. So it's yeah more uh, about the, the journey and learning new stuff and, and sometimes there's like crazy pieces that um, pop in uh, at auctions. I did not even know I wanted them but I see them and I'm like okay I need to, to get them. Obviously uh, I'm not able to uh, to acquire all of them but still it's it's fun to see new watches coming in and sometimes just knowing that they're around even if they, I don't own them myself just knowing that they're part of um, a collector's collection that enjoys the, the watch is already um, enough for me. And uh, it's the journey more than the possession of a specific watch uh, in itself. 